welcome back to the Santa Cruz Baptist Podcast. My name is Tyler Hurst. I'm one of the pastors at Santa Cruz Baptist Church. And I'm Drew Cunningham, also one of the pastors here. And what we're going to do today is talk through uh, a few points of Drew's sermon from Sunday that went from, or covered the text of Mark chapter 8, verse 1, down to verse 21. Uh, So a pretty sizable chunk. Uh, Drew, what did you hope, uh, well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the passage, and then what did you hope our people walked away with? Yeah, so Mark 8, 1 through 21, and... The title of the sermon was Deja Vu, uh, because just a a simple reading of this text, it it seems like we've heard this before um, somewhere, and we have. Uh, Mark chapter 6, Jesus does the same miracle, seemingly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, um, you know, something I wanted people to see is there are intentional similarities between what Jesus did in Mark 6 and what he does here in Mark 8. Yet, uh, they are distinct miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, they're distinct feedings. And so, um, the two sides of that, one, one thing that I wanted people to see is the reason that Jesus does the same miracle twice is because he's trying to teach them and us that we should be able to look back on what God has done in the past mm-hmm. and expect him to do the same um, in our present and in mm-hmm. our future, that uh, we can trust God because of his character. We look back at who he is, what he's done for us, and we can trust him today. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that that I think Mark is trying to show us through. Uh, if you look through all of Mark 6 and all of Mark 8, there's just this pattern um, of you know, Jesus doing a miracle, him getting on a boat, mm-hmm. um, you know, the disciples' unbelief, him um, speaking into that, you know, so on and so forth. There, so there, there's definite parallels between Mark 6 and Mark 8. But there's also distinctions, and, yeah. and there's some some things that are very different. Uh, one of which is that in Mark 6, Jesus does this miracle primarily in a Jewish region to Jewish people, mm-hmm. uh, that he shows himself uh, to be all satisfying for the 12 tribes of Israel. So mm-hmm. after the first feeding, they pick up 12 baskets full of bread, uh, mm-hmm. very representative that Jesus is... Uh, more than enough for the 12 tribes. Right. Um, but here in Mark 8, um, it's in the Decapolis, which is a region of 10 primarily Gentile cities, and mm-hmm. he's feeding Gentile people here. Um, and so that is something that's significant, mm-hmm. that you noted a couple weeks ago in your sermon uh, on the, the, the Syrophoenician woman, that Jesus is, yes, first to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to all nations. Right. And so we start seeing that happening here in, in this text, that Jesus is not just all satisfying for Jewish people, but for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Mm-hmm. And so that is, if I had to say what I wanted people, the main thing I wanted them to walk away with, it would be that, that Jesus is the bread of life for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, and then... Mm-hmm. You know, kind of a follow-up to that is that uh, we can be blind to that. Mm-hmm. So both the, the Pharisees and then the disciples, unfortunately, seem to be blind to this truth and, and miss it. And if we don't remember um, by looking back at who mm-hmm. God is, um, we can become hard-hearted as well. Yeah, there's so much about that that's super fascinating. I was thinking about how, uh, to put it in terms of Scripture, when 
a lot of people think about Christianity today, they would think of it as primarily a Gentile religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when people think of Christianity in a modern context, they're often thinking about things that are American or Westernized. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not that's not true. Like, Christianity is not an American religion. In fact, Jesus had to go to great extents even duplicating the same miracle uh in order to show, hey, just as I fed the Jews, so I'm also going to feed the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had to he had to really break through some prejudices just in order to get people to understand that it went outside of the Jews. Now, we have a difficult time kind of tracking it back and understanding the Jewish and Eastern roots of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's super interesting. But uh, as well, you mentioned um, unbelief. This is a pretty stark passage unbelief because you have this aspect of how uh, Jesus has literally done this. Now, we don't know how much time has passed, but he's done this just two chapters before, and the disciples are amazed that he's going to do it again. They don't seem to see it coming. They even complain about how little food they have for a second time. Uh, And then on the boat, again, they're complaining, oh, we we only brought one loaf of bread. We Mm -hmm. forgot it. What's happening in this passage in terms of unbelief? It seems so odd and such a stark contrast given how closely together these things take place. Yeah, so in Mark 6, um, they're out on the boat and, you know, they're in this storm and they're terrified, they're afraid, they're calling out. And Jesus actually rebukes them and says, basically, you didn't get the bread thing. Mm -hmm. And so your hearts were hardened. And so, you know, this is kind of a... A second swing at it. Yeah. And you're hoping as you read the text, like, surely they're going to get it this <laughs> time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't. And, and I think that's, you know, something that, that we're meant to see in the text, that that they don't see it. Mm-hmm. And that, that should be a warning to us, that mm-hmm. if we're not reading the scriptures, if we're not remembering who God is, we can just as easily um, be blind to to who God is mm-hmm. and, and what he's doing in our lives. But, you know, that's something that we always talk on this podcast about things that we had to leave on the cutting room floor or things mm-hmm. that didn't make it into our sermon. And I think that's something um, that I definitely could have, have done a lot more with. Mm-hmm. Uh, in verse 14, so the, the Pharisees have just shown their unbelief and their mm-hmm. blindness to, to who Jesus is. They, they ask him for a sign. Mm-hmm. Um, and he rebukes them and says, I'm not going to give you a sign. And then he gets in the boat with the disciples. Verse 14, it says, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they, they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware. And what does he tell them to watch out or beware mm-hmm. of? The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Um, I very quickly in the sermon uh, made a comment that what that is, is unbelief. Mm. Um, well, how do I get there? That's if I had more time, yeah. I would have would have spelled that out. And so, what's really important to understand is that leaven throughout the scriptures uh, is typically uh, a representation of evil or of sin. Mm-hmm. So you have Paul saying, um, warning the church in Corinth: a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Saying a little bit of sin, if not dealt with, will spread quickly throughout the entire church. Mm-hmm. So leaven uh, constantly represents sin. Uh, in the Passover, um, you you have them. Um, he says, you know, cook with unleavened bread mm-hmm. um, to represent purity. 
Um, mm. And they, they cooked it quickly to get out of there as well. Right. But in like a Passover Seder, um, you know, with that meal, you, you have leavened bread hidden all over the room and mm. you have the kids go and find it and then they toss it out the door mm-hmm. uh, as a representation of purification. Right. So leaven represents sin, but I made the case that the sin that was being spoken of is unbelief. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, context matters. Where have we seen the Pharisees and Herod, even in this book, in Mark? Yeah. Well, rewind back to Mark 6 again. Um, you know, right before Jesus fed the 5,000, we have the Pharisees who, even in Jesus' own hometown, are rejecting him. Mm-hmm. They have unbelief in their hearts. They continue to have unbelief in the way that they challenge him publicly right. over and over and over and over again. Uh, Herod, you know, he throws this big party, and unbelief in Herod's heart leads to the, the lopping off of John the Baptist's head. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's A very... prophet who he was really interested in and uh, wanted to engage with. Exactly. I mean, it talks about how... Uh, how much respect he had for John the Baptist and how he kept on coming back to him, even though John the Baptist is confronting his sin. So this unbelief goes so far that it even overrides his interest in John's message and who John is. Exactly. So, you know, this leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod is unbelief. And Mm -hmm. so that's what Jesus is warning his disciples about here in the boat. He's saying, you guys are showing symptoms of Mm -hmm. unbelief here. Beware. Watch out for that. It'll destroy you. Right. And so... You know, just in that, I think someone who uh, I love her books, I've, I've enjoyed learning from her over the last several years. Uh, she talks about this a lot. Her name's Rosaria Butterfield. Um, she wrote uh, one of her newest books. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Mm-hmm. And while, while that's outside of today's purview, mm-hmm. um, fantastic book that I would recommend. But um, if you don't know her story, she tells her story in one of her first books called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And um, if you don't know her story, she uh, comes from a homosexual past and through uh, a pastor and his wife lovingly just reaching out to her, caring for her, making her meals over many years, um, preaching the gospel to her, um, she comes to know Jesus. She repents and believes. And something that uh, I've heard Rosaria say multiple times, but uh, on November 19th of 2016, she actually tweeted this. Uh, she said, the biggest sin in my life was unbelief, not homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And I think she's right. Um, you know, all the other sins in our life are the fruit of unbelief, right. not the other way around. Right. And so I think, you know, we could do this with pretty much any sin out there. Um, let's say drug addiction, mm-hmm. um, if we treat the drug addiction as the most important thing, then I think we've whiffed as Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to first get at the sin of unbelief. Um, if we can get someone off of drugs, that is a good thing, and yeah. I don't want to discount that. We should try to help people get off of drugs. But if we've only done that, then, man, we've got a, a sober person who ultimately ends up in hell. Yeah. And so... That's where we're, we're saying, you know, and why Rosaria would say that her biggest sin was unbelief and not homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And again, like you there at home, you can, can try to think through any sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we can clean up that sin, but there's still unbelief, um, that is damning yeah. and, and horrible. And so 
that's why Jesus is kind of going at it straight on and saying, beware of the leaven of, of the Pharisees and of Herod. Mm-hmm. This is serious, guys. Right. Yeah, and so often, and Rosaria does an excellent job pointing this out, I think it's in her book, Openness Unhindered, which is sort of a sequel to Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, she points out that uh, we in the church can so often highlight the visible sin. Mm-hmm. And so um, Rosaria talks about the um, the wisdom, pastoral wisdom of her pastors, who her pastor and his wife, uh, who ministered to her as she was, I mean, she wasn't just identified as gay. She was a tenured professor at an Ivy League school, and her background was queer theory. So she mm-hmm. was a queer theory literature professor, um, which we could get into, like, what they do. Uh, essentially, like, you read Shakespeare and you look for gay people in it, and you think about how the gay community should read that book. So her job was wrapped up in this. She was heavily involved in the... Uh, activist, the LGBTQ activist community. Um, so this was like her entire life. Very, very visible sin. Uh, her pastor, when she was meeting with him, could have just gone right at that because mm-hmm. that's the obvious thing. But in his wisdom thought, you know, the Holy Spirit might want to address something that I don't see before addressing the visible thing. And because of that, actually, it was the sin of unbelief. And then she says, followed quickly by pride, that both of those had to be addressed before she could hear any critiques of her sexuality. Totally. Uh, And it's just, that's such a a fascinating idea that we would often go after the the visible thing. Like, what, what can I see that you're obviously doing wrong? But like you said, you can, you can solve certain problems uh, and move away from them. I mean, that's sort of like what AA does, right? Mm-hmm. Is it gets you away from being addicted to alcohol, it gets you away from destructive patterns related to alcohol, but it doesn't save your soul. Right. And I don't want to discount that, that, mm-hmm. you know, with a, an alcoholic, it is important to get them away from alcohol. Right. Um, and so we're, we're not saying that you don't address the, mm-hmm. the sin. Um, you do, and you try to help people get untangled, mm-hmm. as Galatians says, yeah. from, from their sin. But the, the sin of unbelief is so much more important to deal with. Mm-hmm. And something that I've also heard Rosaria say is that once you've dealt with the sin of unbelief, once mm-hmm. someone comes to believe, mm-hmm. um, you also have uh, another very important person on your team, mm-hmm. and that's the Holy Spirit. Right. <laughs> that For those who believe, uh, they have the Holy Spirit inside them. Well, mm-hmm. one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. Mm-hmm. And so the Holy Spirit is a much better convictor than Drew or Tyler. Right. Uh, and so that that's important too. When we deal with the sin of unbelief, um, we get the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. helping with conviction and with dealing with some of the, the, the sin. Yeah. I think um, one of the things I want to do now is I want to peek behind the curtain a little bit and not just talk about what you left out, but talk about some of the things that you and I see in Scripture uh, that we're hoping when we teach— we're hoping to model a good way of reading scripture to those who are listening uh, in order to get more out of their Bible reading. Mm-hmm. Because I think uh, what you just did in going, hey, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod, that's unbelief. I think that's really helpful, but I th- I think it can be hard for people who just have, um, you know, kind of a rudimentary approach to reading their scriptures to really grapple with that. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned... This tracks all the way back to Mark chapter 6. And so it might just be helpful to talk a little bit about what's called literary context. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, I, I did a little bit of that in the sermon too, mm-hmm. um, mentioning that, that Jesus is the bread of life, right? Right, right. And that he was born where? Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Well, Bethlehem, the Hebrew word there means house of bread. Jesus right. was literally born in the house of bread. Yeah. And so, you know, just tracking these things, not just in the text that you're in, but tracking them across all of Scripture, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we even went back further than that to say, well, where else is bread? Yeah. Bread is in, you know, Exodus 16. They're out in the desert, mm-hmm. and God is bringing them manna or bread from heaven. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, to your point, looking at, at all of Scripture and seeing where some of these themes come up over and over and over again is really important to how we understand the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can even do that in the book of Mark yeah. to track track these things throughout Mark and, right. and what he's been doing with this. Yeah, so you were looking at Mark 8, 1 through 20, uh, where you have Jesus feeds the 5,000, and he makes two references to leaven, leaven of Herod, leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, and then... One of the things we would say is just like kind of the first step in literary criticism is to go, uh, well, what like what happened right before, what happens right after, and that'll help you kind of put things in context. Uh, well, if you go up just a little bit or turn back a few pages, you run into the story of the Syrophoenician woman, which I taught on uh, a couple of weeks ago. And while that that story doesn't seem to have a ton to do with bread. There is this reference to a kingdom meal, and there's this reference to eating the crumbs that fall off the table. Mm -hmm. Now, that might seem like kind of a little thing to connect, but it's not on its own, right? That is just one breadcrumb. Breadcrumbs, uh, intentional play on words there. Uh, But it also tracks back up into talking about uh, the feeding of the 5,000, Am I getting that number right? Yeah, the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6.30, uh, which in the passage where Jesus walks on water, he references the disciples' inability to understand the bread thing, as mm-hmm. we were saying. So you have two references to bread taking place there. And what happens right before the feeding of the 5,000? Well, you have Herod throwing this banquet that you just talked about uh, where John the Baptist gets killed. Well, so you have Herod feasting, you have that contrasted with Jesus giving people a feast. And then in your passage, you have a reference back to that. And you have this whole section tied together by references to bread and to unbelief, which then can even actually... Even the, the story of the Pharisees coming in and wanting the disciples to wash their hands, that's in the yeah. context of a meal. Right, right. And so all of this takes place in terms of unbelief, which then ties it back to the beginning of Mark chapter 6, where you have Jesus teaching in Nazareth, his hometown... So if you think like, you know, hometown here, I think you even made the reference to like hometown heroes. And if anybody's likely to honor Jesus, it would be those who mm-hmm. saw him grow up and they saw, you know, they should be proud of him, but they reject him because of unbelief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, so you can, you start to see this kind of theme build from the beginning of Mark chapter six through where we're at in Mark eight. And even uh, a couple of passages after where you closed you'll have um, Peter, and I talked about this in my sermon last week, uh, kind of sort of see, right? You know, he's he gets that Jesus is the Christ, doesn't understand that the Christ has to die. And right. so you have him still struggling with, like, kind of getting it, not really quite getting it, um, as they, like, wrestle with belief. So I think it's just helpful just to go, you know, essentially a lot of people 
when you or I teach will make comments about how insightful something was. That's not because you or I are really, really intelligent or way smarter than the average person in our church reading the Bible. It just happens that, you know, when you get to give your time, your days to studying the scriptures like you or I have, you get to see these connections as you're reading big chunks of scripture at a time. Mm-hmm. And you begin to, to read the Bible through a specific lens, mm-hmm. uh, the lens of biblical theology. And so, you know, once you're kind of looking for these things. It's not hard to make those connections. Right. Um, you put on the, the biblical theology lenses, so to mm-hmm. speak, and things just pop off the page yeah. regularly. Yeah. I, and I have, to, I have to admit that part of that is hard for me because there's so much emphasis today on like trying to be practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you kind of, you have to approach scripture um, with a different set of questions than what many of us, uh, myself thinking about, you know, as a high schooler going to, you know, kind of a generic evangelical Bible church where, you know, the Bible was open and the Bible was taught, but it was taught in this way of like, eh, if we don't give this group of high schoolers, or if we don't give this group of college students something really, really practical to walk away with, then we've missed the boat. Right. But so often when I'm preparing a sermon, I don't have a practical application until I figured out how this passage plays into the entire story of what God's doing in Scripture. Bingo. And I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, to, to put it very simply, the Bible is not like an encyclopedia. Right. So I don't, for, for those of you older people, you remember the Encyclopedia Britannica. A lot for of youngers, <laughs> think about Wikipedia. A lot, of homes, mm-hmm. a lot of homes back in the day would have like, you know, 30 volumes of this thing called mm-hmm. the Encyclopedia Britannica, where... Mm-hmm. You know, before the internet, if you needed to understand something, you would go pull one of those volumes off and, you know, they were alphabetical and you'd Mm -hmm. pull whatever volume you were trying to learn about Mm -hmm. um, off the shelf and you'd read about that specific thing. Mm -hmm. Well, that specific volume and that specific article that you were reading pretty much had no connection to anything else um, in those, the other volumes. And, And a lot of people treat the Bible that way. They... You know, want to try to deal with this specific topic, and so they go to a concordance and they find where does the Bible talk about this? Mm-hmm. They open to there and they read it unconnected from every other book of the right. Bible. And you know, that it's not necessarily wrong to, to try to figure out what the Bible says about this specific thing, mm-hmm. and that's good to know what the Bible says about a specific topic, mm-hmm. but uh, if we're only reading it that way, we're missing out that the Bible is. A book, capital mm-hmm. B. It's not sixty-six books. Right. Um, they're all connected. It's one story from beginning to end, mm-hmm. and so um, that's where reading the Bible is different mm-hmm. than reading the encyclopedia. Yeah. Um, or reading a specific article just for an article's sake. It's more like reading Tolkien, right? Exactly. Like if you pulled off any from the Cimmerillion, the prequel to the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings trilogy, or the Hobbit, or any of those three books. Uh, and just read one chapter, there are points in that story where you would be really confused about who the good guys and bad guys are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have to put that one chapter in the broader context. There's times where, you know, Bilbo does does things because his mind is being manipulated by the power of the ring, and you start to see this, like, dark side of who he is. If you just read that chapter, you think he's a bad guy. When it, You know, for one of the books, he's the main protagonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just understanding biblical theology is really important. I know we've talked about this in previous episodes, but uh, we can't speak highly enough of beginning to understand biblical theology. It, it'll change the way 
you read the Bible, it'll change the way you study it. Um, it's definitely changed the way that, that I even preach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a dealer's choice on where we, where we close on this because I kind of have two questions uh, as we come to the end and as I'm thinking about your sermon. Um, one of them is that you made a passing reference in your sermon to how progressive Christians uh, will read this passage and mm-hmm. how they often look at the feeding of the 4,000 and they think Mark made a mistake and accidentally wrote the feeding of the 5,000 twice and mm-hmm. like, I don't know, maybe caught on that he had made a mistake so Just he quickly cut changed paste, the numbers. Right? Yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting because when I preached on the feeding of the 5,000, I pointed out how progressive Christians often uh, will look at that passage and go, well, there's no way that this could have happened. And so uh, so what we think is there were way more fish and way more loaves, and it got, uh, it got expanded and it got embellished into like one of those like big fish stories. The fish was this big. You can't see my hands, but they're very close together. And then by the time you finish telling the story, it's like three feet. Uh, so one thing I think is helpful or might be interesting to talk about is, you know, what's going on there? Why do you and I feel a need to point out what Christians from another stream of thought or um, uh, this group of progressives, how they might read? The other thing that I think is really fascinating to think about uh, is this whole section with unbelief. It's not just about, and you pointed this out in your sermon, it's not just about the Pharisees and Herod. It's about the disciples, too. They're mm-hmm. sitting in the boat. Jesus literally just fed 4,000 people with not that many loaves of bread. There's only 13 of them in the boat, 12 disciples in Jesus, and they have one loaf of bread, and they're not sure how they're going to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the disciples struggle with this, too. But this is also prior to the Holy Spirit coming. So I'm wondering, in terms of how we understand it as Christians today— do we go, well, that's what it looks like to try and follow Jesus without the Holy Spirit? Or uh, is this supposed to be a warning to even us who have the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. So which one of those do you, where do you want to go with that? I'll, uh, I'll take the first one. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I felt the need to address that just because, you know, it, there, there are people out there constantly mm-hmm. trying to poke holes in the Bible's truthfulness. Mm-hmm. Um and even, they do so saying that they're Christians. Right. One of the even, even as a historical document to, mm-hmm. to poke holes in, um, saying that there are errors in the scriptures. You know, and, and in this case, they say there's a scribal error that mm-hmm. you know, this story from Mark 6 is just kind of cut and pasted, accidentally mm-hmm. repeated in Mark 8, but it was really only one story. Mm-hmm. And so I, why I kind of wanted to push back at that is I think that, that if you start going down that trail... Um, you ultimately cannot trust the rest of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I'm you know, willing to take a step and say, well, oh, this is an error, well, could there be other errors? Yeah, there's like, no is, limiting principle. Right. Is, mm-hmm. is the cross even true? Right. Um, it, are the claims of Jesus as a whole even true? Um, that that rock-solid foundation is, is shaken whenever you begin to do that. Um, and so I, I think that's a huge mistake um, to, to say that that there are errors, even scribal errors, in the Scripture. Um, you know, in, in this case, it's easily refutable just looking at the text itself. Jesus himself in the boat says mm-hmm. that these are two distinct things. And so, again, Jesus' credibility is mm-hmm. on the line here. Right. Um, 
if this is a scribal error and these weren't two events, you have Jesus being mistaken mm-hmm. um, and Jesus saying something that's not true. And so take that down, down its logical conclusion. If Jesus is saying something that's not true, he himself is not infallible right. and therefore not able to die for our sins because he wasn't perfect. Right. Only a perfect sacrifice could die for mm-hmm. our sins. And so... Um, something uh, as seemingly small as saying that, yeah, there's a scribal error here. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cross goes with that very quickly if you follow the logic. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it is something that I want to address to our people because I want them to know they can have confidence in the Word of God that's in front of them, that they can trust it as a historical document mm-hmm. um, and as something that's intentionally written um, Mark tells this story the way that he does intentionally to teach us something. Jesus did this miracle twice intentionally to teach us something. Mm-hmm. That's not a mistake. Right. That's not an error. And I, I right. want our people to know that very clearly. Well, that's great. Um, why, don't we, uh, why don't we close with just a few recommended resources? So you already mentioned Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she's got three books that I'm aware of aside from well, and we should say the new Rosario Butterfield has three books that I'm aware of. She has a dissertation uh, from her queer theory past and a, a book um, connected to that. And then she has Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, she has Openness Unhindered, and you mentioned The Gospel Comes with a House Key as well. Yeah, I will also link to that tweet uh, that I referenced earlier. Um, she does, it's just a little five-minute interview on the Gospel Coalition where she's kind of talking about some of the things that, that we referenced. So I'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, two other resources that I'd recommend, uh, we've recommended it before, but the little purple book on biblical theology, um, by nine marks, and I'm drawing a blank on who Rourke and Klein, Rourke and Klein. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a helpful book for understanding what we're even talking about with tracing these themes throughout scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, another just helpful book that we recommend all the time is one-to-one Bible reading by David Helm. Mm-hmm. Um, he gives helpful kind of hermeneutical principles for how we should even be reading our Bible. And yeah. so highly recommend that book. Very helpful. Um, you should all read it. Yeah, super easy. Um, and the reason why it's called one-to-one for anybody who's going to pick it up, I think they should take up the challenge, is you read the Bible with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think just reading scripture in community uh, and given Given that, I would just throw out this plug as well. Get a good study Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff that Drew and I see when we prepare sermons, uh, we don't necessarily see at first glance. We read, we study, we pick up on a lot of stuff, uh, but then it's going to commentaries and looking at a, a good study Bible will help you see these biblical theology things. And it's a lot like working out. The more you do it, the more you're going to see uh, and the better you're going to get at this. So with that, uh, we'll wrap up. Um, Thanks for joining us uh, for the Santa Cruz Baptist podcast as we talked through Drew's sermon on uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 20. And I uh, hope you'll return and join us next week. Have a good rest of the week.